And Ben has been spearheading a campus ministry called Oikos. I hope I pronounced that properly. If not, Ben can correct me when he comes. We welcome Ben. Thanks, Katie, and you pronounced it right. Oikos is the name. Most of you have probably heard a big term called globalization before. Yes? It sounds like an awfully big word. Uh, sounds like a complicated term, and in fact, I studied the word a lot in my four years in polit- political studies at Trent University, but really, in all truth, it's, it's, a, it's a big term for a very simple idea, one that we sing about in children's songs all the time, and that's that it's a small world after all, is it not? And we live in an age where that smallness of our world is becoming more and more evident. The technology we have to travel to places increasingly allows us to move quickly and further. Each passing year, I think we're able to put more and more miles on. I know I have as I've grown up and started doing ministry, thousands and thousands of kilometers each year, just just going from place to place to visit family, to visit friends, etc. Planes allowing us to easily set off to other countries that would have taken years to get to via boat or certainly via walking or horseback or whatever other methods used to be normative. Saddled wagons, maybe, I don't know. And, uh, and of course, the internet, the revolution that that provides and being able to not just travel somewhere else and, and take still the hours or, or days that it takes to do that, but now we can actually see things going on across the world or learn about things going on across the world in an instant. That there's virtually no delay when you Skype somebody across the country or across the world. There's, there's virtually no delay whatsoever. I've actually Skyped a friend in South America named Facundo. It's pretty amazing when you realize, wow, we have like more than a continent in between us. And we're able to sit down and click a button and bam, there that person is. I would have to travel a a number of days to get there if I wanted to in any affordable way anyways. This is something that I'm becoming more aware of as I grow in my ministry. As Katie mentioned, my, my primary focus right now and the thing that I've, I've been doing since September is helping to spearhead a new ministry at Trent campus. Changes that went on over the past few years left a bit of a void in terms of student groups. And this summer, I was praying and asking God where he wanted me to go with my ministry, uh, using the commended status that Auburn very generously has, has allowed me to have for the past three years. And what he laid on my heart was, go to Trent, back to where you studied yourself, and help others grow there. And it's been an amazing uh, few months, and especially the past couple weeks, have just been booming with all sorts of new life and activity on campus, uh, and really aiming to share our faith on campus. But many of you here would know that alongside what I'm doing at Trent, there's another place that's very dear to me, another, another area that I do a lot of ministry with and in, and that is northern Quebec, uh, 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 the Cree nations of Quebec in particular, the Cree being a native tribe here in Canada, one of the, uh, the ones that has, has uh, been long established in relationship with the Canadian government and uh, has something like 10 or 12 different uh, reserves 
which are made up of either hundreds to thousands of people. And for the last three or four years, over the summer, I've had the privilege to work with a mentor of mine to go up north and to help run camps for Cree teenagers uh, who, who desperately need the gospel. And to watch him at work in particular, my mentor Paul, who is gifted as an evangelist, and to see how he takes the, the language that they have and the, the needs and, and, and concerns that they have as a culture and bring them back to Christ is always humbling. To begin to see a little bit more of how culture actually plays a role in our understanding of the gospel. But I don't think anything was more eye-opening for me than a little experience I had last summer while I was up north. And that was meeting a man named Larry. Larry's a pretty old man. He's, he's got that look to him that, that immediately you know this, this man's been through a lot. His hair's gray and quite wiry. He's got a nice big beard, but it's kind of thinning out with age. His teeth are a little bit yellow, and he's got those old spectacle-type glasses that just identify him as an old-timer. And I had met Larry the first time I went up north, but I didn't have a real chance to talk to him until last summer. And when I did, it was amazing to find out how long he had been up north. He went up as part of the Baptist uh, groups in Quebec in uh, the 1970s. At that time, there were no paved roads to get up north that way. There were no internet hotspots that you could connect to things and still stay in touch with people back home. There weren't phone services to be able to connect with family. And, and as he was telling us about traveling up north, leaving behind everything he had in order to bring the gospel up to these Cree natives... I realized, wow, this man's been through an awful lot for the sake of the gospel. And, and especially as he shared a little bit about the sacrifices he had made. One, one very sad story he told about a little girl who was killed by a, a sled dog, for example. That, that They had to travel by sled dog during the winter up there. And these dogs, being so big and strong often are quite ferocious, and that they didn't realize that a six-year-old girl uh, was getting too close to one and ended up getting mauled by this dog. Or, or one of the things that struck me most, uh, having a wife and a two-year-old daughter, was uh, that one experience he had, he was away in the bush helping plant these camps, away from the main towns, and while he was gone, his wife back home in Mysticeny, ended up having a miscarriage. And then he only gets back days later to find his wife broken, suffering, and he wasn't able to be there for her. And yet as he's talking about this, he says this with a pang of sadness in his voice, and yet he smiles. And he says, we've seen God do some pretty amazing things through all of that. And most of all, we know the gospel is being preached here. And that you guys, and he pointed to the group of teenagers and leaders that we had up there, he said, we're glad to have you sharing the gospel too 
and to know that more and more people are involved in that labor. And for me, it was just one of those eye-opening experiences to realize, wow, God's working and has been working in areas, in times, in people that I'm just not aware of whatsoever. And when you get to stop and hear what some people have seen and been through and, and, and how they've seen God working in the midst of suffering and trials, you realize, I'm very small. I'm very small. Even when I get to preach the gospel, it's in a very limited way. God is much, much, much bigger than my own little bubble of influence. And I think that's something that as a church we always should be aware of. That no matter how many amazing things we're seeing God doing here in Peterborough, no matter how many people in this pew are being met by God, there's always more going on than we can even fathom. That God's spirit is at work in the world, spreading the gospel all over the place, in all sorts of circumstances that we can barely fathom. And we should be excited to see beyond our four walls beyond even our city limits. We should be excited to be what I'm going to call this morning global Christians. Christians who are really aware of what's going on in the greater world and how God's Spirit is bringing people to relationship with Him. That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at Romans 1, 8-15. If you want to open up, I'm going to have the passage on the screen in the translation I'm reading from. This passage is not actually an instructive passage. It's, it's, it's the second part of Paul's letter to the Romans. And as with most of Paul's letters, he's included in Romans a prayer for the people that he's writing to. And so in it, there's not a lot of direct instruction. But I think as we look at it, we can see in Paul's prayer an example of this type of global Christianity that I'm talking about this morning. We can see that he's aware of what's going on in other parts of the world. We can see that he's praying for those people. We can see that he's eager to encourage and help those people in what they're doing and their mission to share the gospel. And we see that he's aware of God's call to share the gospel wherever he's placed at a given point in time. And all four of those things are part of what it means to be a global Christian. But before we read the passage, let's say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for Larry and for the humbling experience of being able to meet him and to see how much he's gone through to spread the gospel. Thank you for Larry's people in the world who are sacrificing all sorts of things to see the gospel spread to the world. 
and for the fact that there are more and more Larrys at work in your fields today. I pray that as we open up this passage, we would look at one of the first global Christians to ever exist, and that we'd learn from him, and that your word would speak clearly to us and, and motivate us to think in a big picture way and to celebrate how awesome you are in the work that you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 8, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have, been often, or I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach also to you who are in Rome. Again, I think when we look at this passage, we see Paul exemplifying four things which are commendable, which we as Christians should ourselves seek to do. The first thing that he does is he demonstrates a great awareness of what's going on in parts of the world that he's never even been. That's the very first word that he speaks. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. This is the Romans that he's writing to. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul hasn't been to Rome, as he says a little later in the passage. He's he's mentioned it a few times in his missionary journeys thus far that he wants to go there. But he hasn't had a chance. And instead, he's been paying attention to the latest news that's been circulating about what's going on in the church. We don't actually know exactly how the church in Rome got started. Brent may have mentioned that in last week's sermon. There is no good apostolic connection that we know of with the Church of Rome. Some tradition holds that eventually Peter ended up being the the one overseeing the Church of Rome. But by this point in time, there's no way that Peter was actually there in Rome. Instead, what's what's commonly assumed, and, and the only answer people can really find, is that when Pentecost happened, And the initial wave of Jews were converted to Christianity. Some of them had come from Rome to visit Jerusalem. That type of pilgrimage was fairly common. And that they then took back what they had heard there and brought it back to the Jews in Rome. What we do know is that however that took place and however long it took for the gospel to take seed in Rome, a very diverse church began to spring up without any direct oversight by the apostles whatsoever. 
I'm sure Brent mentioned last week that one of the occasions for the writing of this letter was that there was some strong tension between the Jewish and Gentile factions in the church. That for whatever reason, Jews were feeling oppressed within the Christian church there, which is unusual. In the rest of the world, it was the Jewish church that had primacy and the Gentile church was the newer phenomenon. But instead in Rome, we see a situation in which Paul is writing to people who are in a unique context because of the way that they've grown independently. And he's writing to them to encourage them to deal with some of the issues that are going on in the church and to prepare them for the possibility of a visit from him at some point in the future. But it's it's remarkable that Paul, who is such a busy man, who has helped plant dozens of local churches in different cities throughout Greece, and that he spent most of his time traveling, developing this ministry to the Gentiles. It's amazing that he would say, I'm paying attention to you. You who are off, tucked away in a part of the world I've never been. You who have developed completely independent of any of my preaching. I'm aware of you. And I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention to the fact that people are spreading good news about what's happening in Rome. It makes me thankful. I thank God because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. We live in an age when news of what's going on globally is very available, very accessible. I'm going to share some resources later that you might be able to get your hands on to get more in tune with some of what's going on in global Christianity. But the first step to being a global Christian is simply, are you seeking out that knowledge? Are you paying attention to what's going on outside of your church, outside of your simple city ministry? Not to downplay the importance of the people in your life. By all means, Ten times to one, Paul tells you, stay where you are, serve the people who he's put in your life. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, how our local context is part of global Christianity. But we should be mindful, like Paul, of the fact that there are great things happening outside of our sphere of influence. We really should be paying attention to how many good things God is doing elsewhere. The natural outflow of this, the thing Paul turns to immediately, is that he is praying for this church and in response to this church. We see his prayer in the fact that he says, I thank God for you. But then he also says, God is my witness that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Paul in his regular prayer routine, in carving out space with God, makes room for praying for people he's never even met. When he gives a list at the end of Romans, he he mentions a handful of names, but the majority of the church in Rome he's never even met, and yet he sees a need to pray for them. Do you do that? I do, probably not as often as I should, but one of the things that's been helpful for me is, is, is the encouragement to pray in rings or circles. 
we should always be praying for the people immediately in our lives. Our own needs, the needs of our family, the needs of our closest friends. But in your prayer life, do you turn then to pray for the next ring out? The local church that you're a part of? The people who are leading the ministries going on here at Auburn? The people here in Peterborough who are part of Church in the City and seeing the citywide ministry growing? And then beyond that, do you pray for things going on on a national and a global level? Do you take the time to say, God, I, I want you to be moving in Canada, to see your kingdom coming here, to see people coming to know you, as well as to see this land conforming to your will? Or to pray for people overseas, our missionaries, the people Auburn helps send abroad, as well as people who are involved in crises. It's not hard to pick up on news about people who are being oppressed for their faith. And it's a good thing to spend some time humbly saying, God, I don't know everything going on there, but I know that you know what's going on, and I want to lift them up as my brothers and sisters in Christ. I have found when I do that, when I pray in rings like that, I take the time to either move outwards, or sometimes you can move inwards, start with the big and move into the small. But it helps keep things in perspective. When you're, when you're praying to God, God, would you please fix my car or help my broken ankle or something like that? These are, these are needs. But we recognize that these are one of many types of needs. And in fact, often small needs compared to the massive needs that we see globally. It doesn't make you think God is, or it shouldn't make you think God is not going to pay attention to your needs. Instead, what it should do is it should humble you to realize this global God with his massive scale who's working with people in Egypt who are being oppressed for their faith actually cares enough about me to hear me pray about my broken ankle. It's a humbling thing when you realize God's great magnitude and the needs that exist throughout the whole world. And Paul models that for us. He says, I, I lift up this church in Rome regularly in my prayers. The third thing we see that Paul does is that he's eager to encourage, eager to come alongside the church in Rome and to, to help them grow in their own ministry. He says, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayer, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I might impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This is actually one of the most unique prayer sections in all of uh, the, the New Testament. When Paul writes a prayer to the church that he's writing to, almost always he does so with a tone of authority. I pray that you would stop buying into the false gospel that you need to be circumcised to be a Christian. That's how he prays to the church in Galatia. I pray that you would stop doing this. There's an authority to it. But when he's praying to Rome, this congregation that he's never met, he sees a different need and a special need for encouragement. 
he recognizes that as much as he will and does speak with authority throughout the book of Romans, that in fact, there's a mutuality to their relationship because of the fact that they're working in a completely different field than he is. And so he says, not only that he expects his words to encourage them, to equip them, but that he's going to receive it back. That we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Part of being a global Christian is recognizing that when you are willing to reach out to encourage people who are working in other parts of the world, then you yourself grow. You yourself are encouraged because you come to really see the bigger picture that's going on along the lines of what we've already been talking about. I've always been a little bit cynical of the whole business of short-term missions that exist in our culture. There's almost like a go on a great big adventure and save the world or something like that that goes on sometimes in the church. And for a lot of years, I was just like, short-term missions are for sissies. The only true missionaries are people who go overseas long-term. But my mindset changed a little bit when I actually spoke to some long-term missionaries. I think it might have been Roy and Rose Tibbet, who are very connected here to Auburn. And they made the comment, there are few things that we find as encouraging as people who come to visit us on short-term missions and help with the labor that we're doing. And they said their experience talking to missionaries everywhere is the exact same thing. That it's very encouraging having a group of young people come to be with you. And that that encouragement sometimes goes beyond what you might get from just having somebody send you a bit of money or something like that. As a commended worker... I can say financial support is very encouraging. (laughs) And so are all sorts of other things, such as letters of encouragement or uh, prayers of encouragement where people are, you know, people are praying for you. I've I've had people tell me after the fact that they were praying for me through seasons of great difficulty. I've been like, wow, that's why I felt able to handle that. Because God was working through their prayers in my life. We should be deliberate about supporting our missionaries financially. We should be deliberate about praying for people. We should be deliberate about sending them occasional letters, messages saying, you know what? I'm inspired by you. I love what it is that I see you doing. And you might even consider at some point making a trip to visit one of those missionaries to see what they're doing to help out a little bit with the work that they're doing. Because the truth is, it is wonderful for somebody in a different part of the world to realize that there's somebody across the world who's deeply invested in the work that's going on in their place. The first three components of being a global Christian, knowing what's going on in the world, praying for people in other parts of the world, And being willing to encourage those people who you know in other parts of the world to actually send out notes of encouragement or to even visit them and encourage them. This is something that we see modeled in Paul's life. I want to come really be a part of what it is that you're doing. 
The last thing we see in Paul's life is a little bit of a twist, a little bit different in terms of how it, how it works. But I think it actually rounds out the list of what it means to be a global Christian very strongly. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. What Paul's doing there is describing his ministry. You have to be familiar with Paul to see it, but the real key words, the real things that give it away, are the fact that he talks about reaping a harvest among the Gentiles. And then he uses, he uses these binaries, Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. These are categories of people that Paul has expressed elsewhere in Scripture that he is called to in particular. Paul is known as the, 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 the apostle, uh, the missionary to the Gentiles. He talks about having a special calling to share the gospel with the Gentiles where most of the other apostles were investing in the Jews. And in using this language, Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, he's actually adopting Greek terms. For Greeks, the whole world was broken up into two categories. You're either Greek and enlightened, or you're not and you're foolish. Really tactful on their part. I mean, at least they're honest about their superiority. But because of the great history of philosophy and technology that the nation of Greece had spread, they were... They were quite simple about the fact that, you know what? Greeks are superior to the rest of the world. Now, the Greeks would have included the Jews in that category of barbarians. Paul is careful about the way that he uses his language. Elsewhere in Scripture, he uses the term Greek and Jew as opposites. In Galatians, for example, we see that, the different ways of approaching the gospel, Greek and Jew. But here he's careful to use Greek and barbarian because he himself, being a Jew, obviously doesn't think that Jews are barbarians. <laughs> he believes that, in fact, uh, uh, as we see in the next verse after this passage, the gospel came first to the Jews, then to the Greeks. But what he's telling us here is that he's not just interested in preaching the gospel to the enlightened Greeks that his ministry is to all Gentiles. That God has laid on him a special burden to take the gospel both to the enlightened Gentiles and the unenlightened Gentiles. And he's leaving the Jews out of that category on purpose because that's not his primary ministry. What Paul's doing is he's telling us, and he's telling the Romans in particular, that he has a calling. We're on the theme of being unashamed of the gospel in this series. And I find it amazing that Paul would say not just that he is unashamed of the gospel, but that he is under obligation to the people that he's called to. That he's obligated to preach the gospel to those whom God has called him to. In Paul's case, he includes Rome in that category. That's why he's so eager to come visit them. Because not only does he want to come encourage, 
but he sees them as being part of his missions field. There are lots of people yet unreached in Rome who fit into my missions category. But Paul gives us an example here that I think is helpful in understanding that as soon as you think globally, as soon as you realize I'm part of a global church, you have no choice but to recognize that your own home soil is also a missions field. I think this is essential for us to really be global Christians. In the past 200 years, missions have rightfully gained an affiliation with colonialism. This idea that when nations from Europe decide to go take over other nations, they bring Christianity with them. And that the church often hops on that bandwagon, goes along and brings kind of the religious part of the culture with it. That's not global Christianity as Paul sees it. Paul recognizes that even where I am right now is as much a missions field as out there. As those new frontiers. And he recognizes he has a particular role to play in it that he himself is called to preach to the Gentiles wherever he goes. But he will tell people over and over and over again, stay put. Titus, Timothy, you have a role to spread the gospel right where you are. Because there's lots and lots and lots of people who need to hear it right where you are. We can never think, oh, Peterborough, Canada, these are Christian places. Africa really needs the gospel. No. No, no. Your next-door neighbor needs the gospel every bit as much as the unsaved person in Africa. Part of being a global Christian is taking up the call to see the gospel spread right where you are, right next door. So that, again, you are in this mindset of recognizing God is at work everywhere. And yet, I'm humbled to realize he actually wants to be at work right here in my relationships. I'm encouraged when I look at this example of Paul. It's a simple example. It's a simple message. Don't think narrowly. See the big picture and then recognize your context as a part of that big picture. And I think in the 21st century, we have more opportunity than ever before to do that. Tim Keller loves to cite some statistics. At the beginning of the 20th century, something like 80% of Christians were in Europe and North America. Now, after 100 years of change within Christianity and the gospel really spreading like wildfire through the world, if you look at a map it's actually almost evenly divided between all of the different continents. Slightly lower than 20% in Europe, slightly higher than 20% in Asia, mostly because of population bases. But you end up with almost a fifth of Christianity in Europe, in North America, in South America, in Africa, and in Asia. And in reflection of that, 
increasingly, there are good resources that help you see that big picture. I'd just like to share a few that have been helpful for me this morning, just because it's good to have a means to actually do this, to cultivate this global mindset that I'm encouraging. The first is one called Operation World, I think is the, the, the yeah, Operation World. Operation World is a neat project designed to help Christians pray for one another across the whole world. And so it actually organizes, and it's a pretty big book, but you can order a copy, and it organizes um, the world into quite detailed categories of the different regions and gives you lists of needs, specifically, that the church is facing. And they update this globally, uh, uh, annually, I think, uh, and they update all of the global statistics so that you have a good sense each year of what it is that you can pray for. And it comes along with some prayer schedules so that you can participate in the praying for the whole world as you go through the year, the calendar. Another resource for those who are more theologically minded, I would point people towards, is the Lausanne movement. This is a missionary alliance movement. It's a, it's a group of, and I don't mean that the denomination, I mean it's a group of churches, denominations, globally, uh, evangelical in flavor, that have come together and for the last 40 years been discussing what it means to be a church with a mission. And some of the articles they produce dealing with questions like, how does Christ's mission in this world relate to the question of my workplace? Or how does... Christ's mission in the world relate to the topic of sending missionaries overseas, etc. They do some amazing work, and, and it's very proactive theology. Instead of just dealing with kind of the sticky issues going on in the world at this point in time, they're really deliberate about talking about the Trinity and God's mission in this world, and then how that affects us. I would, I would actually quite happily uh, point anybody to their statement of faith, which is pages long, if you wanted to see what I think a really good understanding of Christianity is, because it's very thoroughly developed in terms of understanding how Christ works in us and then to the world. Uh, the third thing that I would point you to, and it's not coming to mind, so Sally, you're going to have to... Oh, yes, sponsoring a child. This is something that I've been doing for eight years now, I think. And many of the families in this church sponsor children elsewhere. But I found it incredibly helpful to, to um, sponsor a child in another part of the world and to write letters with them. And the, the organization I've gone through, Watoto, one of the neat parts is that they actually sponsor the child right up through university. And so my, uh, the, the, the child I started sponsoring when he was 11 years old is now actually just starting university. And being able to write back and forth with him and hear his experiences of what the world looks like there and asking questions about what does your church look like? How do you celebrate? Um, they, they had a midnight uh, overnight service for New Year's Day. One of the things in Uganda they do, they, they really believe we need to usher the New Year in by, by worshiping God. And so the whole church, thousands of people gather to go overnight on New Year's and, and celebrate together. I thought, wow, that's something that I would love to do with my church. Right? And you get this give and take where you learn from other parts of the world very personably when you're sponsoring a child. And then the last thing I would encourage you to do is to get connected to the missionary newsletters that exist in this church. 
Auburn has a number of different people whom they send abroad, whom they sponsor, and most of them produce update newsletters regularly with prayer requests, with needs that are coming up. And I've found it very helpful to just know the people who are in my sphere of influence and yet elsewhere in the world and what their needs are. And again, to be able to start writing letters of encouragement and corresponding with those people online, etc., uh, is something I felt very helpful. And as somebody who produces a newsletter, I'm always excited when more people want to be able to get that, uh, to hear about what's going on. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you are a global God, that you have designed every person, every thing in this world, and that you are at work in ways we cannot begin to comprehend. And I pray that, like Paul, we would, we would really keep an eye out for what you're doing in this world in a bigger way and, and be encouraged by what's going on as well as being active about encouraging others and helping resource the work of the gospel going forth everywhere. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.